Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. How many of y'all have enjoyed that cooler weather this morning? Yep, cooler weather. We had high school football Friday. NFL starts this coming Thursday night. Maybe life is getting more normal, right? So I don't know about you, but I'm ready for that to happen. So you just saw that's a new series we're going to be starting next week. You know, we talked about Abraham earlier in the summer in a series we called Believing in God When Life Doesn't Work. And we, we, that was kind of where we were back in the summer for part of the summer. And we're going to kind of look at the second half of Abraham's life starting next week. And Abraham kind of had some crazy things happen in his family. Some of it was uh, self-imposed and then just some other things that happened. So we're going to be uh, looking at the, the rest of Abraham's life starting next week. This morning we're also going to talk about Abraham. And it doesn't really fit in the new series that we're going to be talking about. But we'll get to that in just a moment. So... I don't know, four or five weeks ago, I told you about the uh, new bundle of joy that kind of came bounding into uh, our lives on Christmas Eve, the new puppy that uh, we have. His name is Tucker, and uh, Tucker's just this adorable Heinz 57, very playful dog. And uh, since we've had Tucker, I've made a few observations about him. One observation I've made about Tucker is I've had a lot of dogs in my life. But I've never had a dog, you know how people are like, some people are morning people and some people are evening people? I've never had a dog like that. I mean, most dogs I've ever had, they're just happy to see you, right? I mean, you just look at them, ah, they're all happy, right? But Tucker is an evening dog. So like in the morning, like especially if it's before the sun comes up and, and you turn on the lights, he just looks at you like, what is wrong with you? Turn that thing off. Don't you know the sun's not up yet? And then he rolls back over and goes back to sleep. So that's one thing. And then in the evening, he's like bouncing off of the walls. I think maybe Sean's partially responsible for that, my, my son. But um, so that's one thing I've noticed. Another thing, you'll just find this interesting. When I talked about him five or six weeks ago, so he was in another room and my family's watching online and... Um, when I said his name, my wife said, he comes running from the other room, comes into the living room, looks for me, and then realizes my voice is on the television, stops and just kind of cocks his head and looks at the TV. Said he kind of lost interest at a moment and then started walking back out of the room, and I mentioned his name again, and he turned back around and then started staring at the, uh, the TV again. And then the thing that I kind of want to really kind of point out about him, because this is what really fits the message this morning, is the difference between Tucker when we took him for walks when he was like eight, ten weeks old, and how he is now. So early on, Tucker was like, he was just a scaredy cat. That's all I can say. He was scared of everything when we went for walks. He was, he, he was scared of people. He tucked his tail between his legs. He was absolutely terrified of cars. I mean, if a car started coming, you know, down the road, he'd like be trying to jump up, wanted you to, you know, to hold him. And he was also petrified of other dogs. Like one day we're out for a walk and there's this little terrier that lives around the corner from us, one of those little ones. I don't know exactly what the breed's called, but I mean, like it might've weighed six pounds soaking wet. I mean, it's like this big and it comes bouncing across the yard, just kind of yelping, wanting to play. Yep, 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 yep. You know how they yap. And he's just charging across the yard to play with Tucker. And Tucker probably weighs 30 pounds at this point, terrified. 
tucks his tail between his legs and hides behind me, this little six-pound dog that wants to play with him. Now it's totally different. Like he loves kids. What used to be a 20-minute walk now takes like 45 minutes because all the kids come out and pet him and he licks them and all that kind of stuff. And uh, as far as the other dogs go, he just, he just kind of indifferent to him. He just doesn't pay any attention to him. And then as far as cars go, he's just gotten way too comfortable, if you know what I mean. If you have a dog, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, like he's too comfortable. He's like complacent around dogs. Like he has no fear of them at all. Like the car will be coming down the road and he'll just stand in the middle of the road. Like they'll stop. And so he's gotten really too comfortable with cars. I think we as Christians in our Christian walk, there's some things that we get too comfortable with and we get complacent with. And one of those things, I think, is in the area of sin. We get a little bit too comfortable with it sometimes, especially certain sins that seem to dog us, if you know what I mean. I think every Christian kind of has a sin or maybe sins that they struggle with. And maybe you've tried to, 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 to get rid of it and overcome it, and, and, and it just doesn't seem to happen. And finally, you just reach that point where you just like, you just give up. Well, I've blown in and there's nothing I can do about it and I'm tired of trying and, and we just become too comfortable with it and God's not comfortable with it. And we all know that when we become believers, God forgives us of our sin and, and we should be growing, but yet a lot of times when life gets difficult or maybe stressful or something, we tend to revert back and return to those old sinful patterns that we used to have. And of course, this is nothing new. I mean, you look at some of our biblical heroes in Scripture. I mean, think about Moses, okay? Think about Moses. If Moses were alive today, that dude would have to go to anger management classes. Am I right? I mean, he killed a guy because he lost his temper. When they were wandering through the wilderness, there are several examples of, of Moses just basically have a, having a temper tantrum, and the outcomes of those were not very good for God's people. And then you think about like Samson, like the original Mr. Swole, right? I mean, the first one. And yet he had the, the, just this uh, sexual delusions or malfunctions or whatever you want to call his entire life, these sexual urges. In fact, the first recorded words of Samson in Scripture are this. A young, I saw a young Philistine woman in Timnah I want to marry her, go get her for me. Those are his words to his parents. And of course, the story of Samson and Delilah is infamous. And uh, of course, laying in her lap and his hair being cut, and eventually that led to his demise. So you have that. And then how about David? I mean, David, a guy that scripture says, a man after God's own heart. And do you know that guy collected women like you collect baseball cards? I mean, he just struggled with that his entire life. And of course, the most famous of those things would have been Bathsheba. And then, then all the outcomes of that that were just negative and terrible outcomes. But I don't think those guys are alone. We struggle with things. We struggle with temptations and sin. And I think each of us could talk about our own failings and our own repeated struggles with, with sin. And Abraham's story, and that's what we're going to look at today. And you know, you realize these stories in Scripture are told for our benefit, right? 
And I think there are some things that we can learn from Abraham. And this episode that we're going to look at in his life today in Genesis chapter 20, I think it's going to resonate with a lot of us. In Abraham's case, the sin was this. He had this compulsion to lie. So when Abraham would get in trouble or things would get stressful, rather than looking to God, like we talked about when life gets tough, believing in God, when life gets difficult, when life gets hard, when that happened to Abraham, his compulsion was to go back and lie instead of having faith in God that God would take care of whatever the problem was. And so that's the sin that just dogged Abraham, that compulsion to lie. Now you may remember last summer, very early on in the series, Abraham has is, is moved to Egypt. And there, his, his wife Sarah, who at that point was 65 years old, she was a looker. And Pharaoh notices this. He's the king. He can have whatever he wants. And so he wants to take Sarah and make her part of his harem. And so Abraham, not knowing how he's going to get out of that difficult situation, tells Sarah, we're going to lie about it. And we'll just tell everybody that you're my sister and, uh, and, and then hopefully we'll be protected. And of course that ploy all backfired and it didn't work. And uh, eventually Pharaoh finds out and he's extremely upset. And so this superstitious polytheistic king who doesn't believe in God, he just dresses down Abraham. Just, just tears into him about how Abraham, who's a, a God-fearing man, should be different. And, and yet he lied to Pharaoh. And this could have been a disaster because Pharaoh didn't know she was married. So you would think after that dressing down by Pharaoh that Abraham had learned his lesson in the early chapters of his story in Genesis chapter 12, right? Nope. Not at all. In fact, we're going to see a reoccurrence of the very same thing. So we're going to pick up Abraham's story here in Genesis chapter 20. Most likely, Abraham has seen the rising plumes of smoke coming from the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah was. And so he's moved out of that area, and he can move anywhere he wants. But he's moved into this, this territory that's, that they're kind of hostile toward people like him. But he chose to move there anyway. And he moved to this city-state called Gerar. And why is it significant that it's a city-state? Well, a city-state simply meant that it had its own king. And the king's name was Abimelech. And being a city-state that had its own king meant it was, it was big, you know, a, a larger-type city. And so we pick it up right there. And for the second time in 10 chapters in the book of Genesis, Abraham is going to tell his wife Sarah to tell everybody, and he did too, that you're my sister. So instead of trusting God when things get difficult, he goes back to his crutch, which is to lie about things. And that's exactly what he does. So let's look and pick up the story, Genesis chapter 20, verse 2. It says, And Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. It's like deja vu. It's like the movie Groundhog Day. It's like it's starting all over again. Remember I mentioned to you before that Sarah in, in, the, in Genesis chapter 12 is 65 years old and she's a looker? 
Well, she's 25 years older now. She's like 90 years old, and apparently she is aged very gracefully. She's still this, this beautiful woman that, that men notice her, very, very attractive. I don't know what her beauty secrets were. I don't know if she found some desert herbs that kept her young, or, or if uh, maybe she's like an influencer today, and she figured out the exercise thing was uh, walking around in the desert all the time for miles and miles and miles. But whatever it was... She was still very attractive. And so King Abimelech, he hears about this beautiful woman who is a, uh, to him it appears, because they said she's his sister, that he's the sister of this wandering nomad by the name of Abraham. She's beautiful. I want her to be one of my wives. I want her to bring her into to my harem. And so kind of the customs of the day, they would, he, he took her, he had a squad of soldiers go get her, brought her into his harem. There would be a two or three month waiting period where she wouldn't be around any men just to make sure she wasn't pregnant. And then they would consummate the marriage and she would become part of the king's family. So that's what was happening. That's the situation here. Then we're told in verse 3 that very first night of, of her being, in the, being brought to the palace, the king has a dream. And God comes and talks to him in that dream. And here's what was said. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken she is a married woman. Whoa! But like God's serious about this, isn't he? You are as good as dead? I mean, it's like the death penalty? I mean, that's what God is saying to him? I mean, God isn't messing around with this. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking to myself, if I was a single guy, and I was looking, you know, to date somebody, marry somebody or whatever. And God came to me and said, hey, you married that girl and you're dead. I'm thinking I'm looking somewhere else, right? Well, Bimelech thinks that too. He's like, whoa, I don't want any part of this. And he, he understands. And Abimelech, here's the interesting part. Just like Pharaoh, he didn't believe in God. He might have believed in God's. But he didn't believe in God, but he had enough integrity. He had a moral compass about him that he still knew it was wrong to fool with somebody else's wife. Never think that a person that's not a believer doesn't have any morals about them. Just because they're an unbeliever doesn't mean they don't have a moral compass. And if we can just be candid this morning, I've met unbelievers that had more integrity than some believers I know. In this case, Abimelech behaves more righteously than Abraham. So Abimelech comes to God and he begins to plead his case. And this is what he says. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother, and I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands? So Abimelech's talking to God. He said, God, I didn't know. She said that she was the sister, and he said that. What, what do you want me to do, God? They lied to me. How was I supposed to know this? 
So while Abraham did not honor God with his actions, the Lord kind of used this, this, this what's going on here as an opportunity to, to talk to a pagan king. So this is what God says next. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. And then it goes on. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. We'll touch on that word in just a second. And he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return to her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. The word prophet. Did you know that that's the first time in Scripture the word prophet is used? And isn't it interesting that the first time God calls anybody a prophet, in this case it's Abraham, it's right after that person is really messed up royally? I think there's a point to be made there. And it's this point. We are imperfect too often overtaken by old temptations. But God, despite our weaknesses and faults, will accomplish his purposes. He'll even use our failures as opportunities to involve us in his plans. Isn't that wonderful? That even when we mess up, God still forgives us and that his purposes can still be accomplished now, that doesn't mean we have carte blanche to go sin and then we just ask for, for, for God's forgiveness. It doesn't work like that. There are still consequences. But even when we mess up, God can forgive us. And that's not going to thwart his purposes. He's still going to be able to accomplish what he needs or what he wants to get done. Abraham totally blew it. Yet, his failure didn't make him any less of God's prophet or God's man. Now, on the other hand, I wonder what Abimelech is thinking. He lied to me, and yet he's supposed to be God's prophet? I mean, Abimelech is upset, wouldn't you be? Because that lie could have cost Abimelech his life. He was about to get the death penalty because somebody lied to him. So this is what Abimelech says, and now he's talking to Abraham. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? Abraham, what are you doing? What did I do to you that you deserve, that I deserve this from you? You have done things to me that should never be done. Abraham, what are you possibly thinking? You could have ruined me. And then Abraham gives his answer. And if you listen to this answer, it's, it's a sad answer. Listen to what Abraham says. Abraham replied. Let's end the last verse. Let's go on to the next one. Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. So he says, it's just a little white lie. It's, it's half true. Of course, if you tell a half lie, it's still a lie, right? And then he continues on. And when God had made me wonder from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. 
So when he says, there is surely no fear of God in this place, they will kill me because of my wife. You know what he was doing? He was saying, well, because they're not believers, they will have no moral compass. So, so I've got to protect myself, and the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to lie. Abraham's response here is he tries to justify himself. It's pathetic. Well, King, you know, you guys don't fear God, so I just figured, you know, I just jumped to conclusions that you would just take her, and so I just lied about it, you know, because I just thought you guys are a bunch of heathens. Well, that just insults this king. His blind assumptions that Abraham, it just insults the king. That somehow he would just kill Abraham and grab his wife, that he had no morals. And put yourself, just for a moment, in King Abimelech's place. You're in the palace probably, maybe it's court, maybe you're standing in front of the, Abraham standing in front of the throne, you're on the throne. What are you going to say to Abraham? What are you going to do if you're King Abimelech? And that's his pathetic answer. Thinking historically about what kings did in the ancient Near East to people who insulted them, chopped their head off, so are you going to look at him and say, you pathetic excuse for a human being, off with his head. Or are you going to see that fool? Go impale him on a stake somewhere because they had all kinds of cruel punishments back then. Make sure he's off my property before the sun goes down. I mean, don't you think one of those options would probably be what King Abimelech was thinking? That's what maybe you would be thinking historically, what we know about the ancient kings. But when you get to verses 14 and 15, that wasn't King Abimelech's response at all. You know what he does? We're told he gave Abraham sheep and goats and cattle and servants. He gave his wife back and then to top it all off, he gave him a thousand pieces of silver. And then, not, not all, he said, you can just go live anywhere in my land you want to. Anywhere you like. You know, in the military, it's possible for people, it doesn't happen very often, but occasionally somebody can rise in rank to a position where they just don't have the respect of their men. I mean, their subordinates, they just don't respect them because however they got to their rank, it, it, just, it just wasn't right. And they don't respect him, but they still salute the man, so to speak. In fact, Stephen Ambrose, he talks about that dilemma, and that's exactly what he said. He wrote the book, Band of Brothers, and he says this, We salute the rank, not the man. That's exactly what happens here with Abimelech and Abraham. Even though Abraham didn't seem to deserve the rank of prophet, so to speak, Abimelech treats him that way anyway. He doesn't seem worthy of it, but Abimelech honors that. And he honors God's representative. And in response, God is going to honor Abimelech. It's interesting too. When you get down to verse 16, and I'm going to read it in just a moment, Abimelech kind of takes this sarcastic dig at Abraham. You could almost say it's like a passive-aggressive comment. Listen to verse 16. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. 
This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you, you are completely vindicated. So here, here, here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, I'm giving your brother. And you look into the original Hebrew and you, you kind of pick this up. The word, he calls him a brother instead of calling him Abraham. So there's this little dig here. And, you, and you, like I said, you pick this up more in the Hebrew. By calling him brother, there's, there, there's this little dig. And by publicly giving a thousand shekels of silver to kind of say, well, your reputation will be in stake. And, and you know, you'll, you'll come out of this, Sarah, with, with, with no, uh, nothing really having been said about you or done to you. But what he's really saying, the passive-aggressive kind of sarcastic dig by calling Abraham her brother is he's saying, you know what? I'm a rich man. A thousand silver pieces don't make any difference to me. Your brother? He's morally corrupt. You could have had me. I'm nobility. I'm a king. I'm wealthy. Instead, you have your brother. I'm the more honorable man. And once again, Abraham is suitably shamed by a non-believer. And our story ends by God restoring to Abimelech's kingdom for all the women to be able to have children because apparently when this all started, uh, God took that away. Abraham returned to his old habits, trying to solve problems on his own rather than depending on God and trusting in God. He depended on his own ingenuity. I think all of us have a tendency to do that in our own unique way. Probably everybody in this room has a go-to response when you're stressed. And a lot of times that go-to response is, is, a, is a sin, is not something that we should be doing. And so I just want to point out four principles this morning from Abraham's life that I hope will help each of us to steer clear of the repeated sins that come into our life. And the first one's kind of an umbrella, and it kind of goes along with what I was talking about earlier. God forgives even when we strike out. Even when we mess up. God still forgives us. I'm sure everybody in this room is probably, even if you're not a sports fan, have, has heard of Babe Ruth. And for years and years, Babe had the uh, home, run, home run record. And then, of course, Hammer and Hank came along and took it. And it has been taken again since then. But Babe Ruth was also a pretty good hitter. He had a lifetime average of 342 batting average. You know, only in baseball can you be bad two-thirds of the time and still be considered great. You know what I mean? But anyway, he, you know, 342 batting average. And, you know, when he was in his heyday, if you've seen the old black and white footage, you know, he, he was a big man. Hold that bat and it looked like a toothpick. And he'd come to the plate and people would just cheer. And they were excited and anticipating him hitting a home run. And, of course, he did that more than any other person back in the day. And, and people would get so excited but like all athletes, as he got, got older, his hand speed kind of slowed down a little bit and, and uh, his eyesight wasn't as good as it used to be. And the same crowds that used to cheer and be so excited when he would walk up to the plate in his latter years would boo. Like even before the first pitch was thrown to him, they'd start booing because he wasn't who he used to be. 
And the crowds that applauded him when he was successful rejected him when he failed. And, and I guess that's what we should expect from people when we strike out and, and we don't have the successes that they expect. But aren't you thankful that God doesn't respond to us the same way? That when we fail, he doesn't respond that way? That how does God react when we strike out? Because I think all of us in the Christian life, we strike out a lot more times than, than we hit home runs. And God forgives. And again, that doesn't mean there's not consequences. But God forgives. Second thing is this. Never presume that you can control your own weaknesses. Deep inside, Abraham had this weakness for, for lying. And apparently he passed that trade on because his son Isaac did the same thing and then his grandson Jacob did the same thing. And this whole family just had this propensity to lie and to deceive and it just keeps showing up generation after generation. And you know, Abraham... He kind of put himself in this predicament when he moved to Gerar, knowing that it was a hostile territory and knowing how the kings would think there. But he did it anyway. It's like he just thought, well, I can get away with that. I can control my weakness. Listen, if you're an alcoholic, you don't rent an apartment above a bar. You don't do that. You, you, you hang around with sober people and, and you try to steer clear of that as much as possible. If, if you have struggle with loss and you get protection put on your computer, if, if, if you have a tendency when you get depressed or, or you eat to make yourself feel better, you don't get fattening snacks, you don't stock your house full of those. You take steps to protect yourself. You never presume that you can just do it on your own, which leads me to the third point. Get rid of your crutches. Don't rely on them. Abraham that, had that lifetime crutch that whenever he would get in trouble, his go-to was lying. And he just set himself up for one failure after the next. And by the way, I think Sarah has some responsibility here too. To me, she should have said, look, Abraham, as a couple, let's trust God. We're not going to do this. She, she just kind of went along with it. Get rid of your crush, crutches. Quit making excuses for them. Acknowledge the sin, repent, claim God's forgiveness, ask for strength. Get some people in your life that you can be accountable to. Maybe it even needs to be people that are, that are professional and specialize in a certain weakness. Don't go it alone, but make a conscious decision to do away with the crutch and then get some, some people around you to help. Fourthly, I think we do this so much. Don't kid yourself and think that you're smarter than everybody else. Abraham had a sharp mind, but he allowed it to work against himself. And I think most of us are pretty smart. And we can devise all kinds of ways, creative ways to, to solve our own problems and take it upon ourselves, and not depend on God and, and meet my own needs and, and not have to worry about what God might want me to do or what, if God might want me to do something different, might not give me what I want. Abraham leaned on his own understanding and ironically created the very problem that he was often trying to avoid. And it's easy for all of us to do. 
I want to conclude with this. Some of you probably heard of Paul Harvey. I used to hear his little stories and stuff when I was growing up. He used to have a radio show and had these great stories. And Anyway, I want to share one of those with you. And uh, I think this story just kind of illustrates how choosing sin to find satisfaction ultimately doesn't work out. The story told is about an Eskimo who would coat, or apparently not just one Eskimo, but Eskimos would coat a knife blade with blood and then freeze it. And then they'd put a little more blood on it and freeze it again and put more blood on it and freeze it again till eventually there was enough layers of blood on the knife that you couldn't tell it was a knife anymore. Basically, I guess it'd be like a popsicle of blood covering the knife or whatever. And that's kind of a gross illustration, isn't it? Don't know where that came from. That wasn't in my notes. But anyway, you, you get the visual. And then they would take it out and they would put it in the snow. That blood-covered knife that you couldn't tell was a knife. And then oftentimes, sometime in the night, a marauding wolf would come by and they would catch the scent of that blood and they would go over and begin to lick the blood off the knife. And as wolves would do, they'd get more feverishly you know, about it and you know, just that, that blood would just drive them into a frenzy, so to speak. And they'd just lick the blood and lick the blood and then they didn't, would never even realize that at some point, the blade would be exposed and that the blood was turning warm, but they wouldn't even know it, notice it because they're just furiously licking the knife and it would cut their tongue and cut their tongue and eventually, to make a long story short, they would bleed out. And the next morning, the Eskimo would find the wolf dead and harvest the pelt and those types of things. If you're finding satisfaction in your sin, you're licking the blade. And eventually, you'll reach the razor's edge and fail to recognize the danger. I think we all know that sin leads to a greater desire for itself and it always leads to heartbreak. And it can even lead to your demise. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we come to you this morning. and Father, I thank you for a story that's 6,000 years old and still has application today. And Father, we thank you for the characters that you have in, included in Scripture that, that just live where we live. Father, I pray for all of us. I, I think we all have sins that we struggle with. That, Father, we can talk about these principles and realize the importance of putting them into our lives. Having accountability and, Father, not presuming upon ourselves that, that we got it all figured out. And Father, I don't know if there's folks here this morning that maybe there's just something that's been bothering them for a long, long time and there's just this guilt. But Father, I just pray that they know that you forgive them. Father, that they don't have to live in guilt. Father, I just pray for our time this morning, our response time. Just help each of us to look into our own lives and say, God, what do you want me to do with this biblical story this morning and these principles? I pray these things in Jesus' name.